This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin, Melancholy, NASA, Emperor Coffee, Rockefeller, Campanella, Communist Block, Roy Cohn. Oh, Roy Cohn. Oh, Cohn off. Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that is history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places, and moments that shaped our world. The ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up, knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, should we start some fires? Why not? El Fuego. And Katie, who are we sparking about today? Well, we are discussing a character who has... A connection to more We Didn't Start the Fire episodes than possibly any other subject. Rosenbergs, McCarthy, Eisenhower, Nixon, Reagan, and spoiler alert, AIDS. Yes, it is Roy Cohn, the power broker lawyer who possibly is responsible for Donald Trump. Yeah, and Katie, we meet some nefarious characters in the course of exploring history through Billy Joel's number one hit, But I have to say, with the exception of the obvious mass murderers in the song, I think Roy Cohn is maybe the biggest bastard we've come across. Yeah, he's a a charismatic individual who does a lot of bad things with a lot of panache. I first came across him in the huge tome that is the Andy Warhol Diaries. It is right here. Many, many, many pages. It runs to over a thousand pages. And it was published in 1989, and Andy Warhol runs into Roy Cohn a few times uh, over the 70s and early 80s. The first time he talks about him in his diaries, uh, it's November 1977, and Andy's talking about uh, having watched the Tom Snyder show on late night television. He says he had Roy Cohn on. Uh, He was incredible. Andy Warhol says, such a creep. He was saying Archie Bunker things like, if I could get my hands on the son of Sam, I'd kill him myself. And talking about the Reds. And this crazy looking person goes into courtrooms. He looks like such a creep. You could just imagine him down at the anvil in black leather. He'd look so perfect. I bet he does go to those places. He would. Or maybe he's just the opposite. Yeah, he's probably just the opposite. He wears dresses. But the things he was saying, like, put everyone in the chair. I mean, they asked him about how he could defend mafia people since he's so concerned about everything. And it was that rights thing. It always is, you know. They have a right to say they're not mafia and be defended. So there you go. Andy Warhol, who's, you know, not the paragon of uh, morality necessarily himself. He found Roy Cohn very 
repulsive. I mean, we can just jawbone here all day, uh, and I can easily do so on an extra cup of coffee. (laughs) But fortunately for all of us, we have somebody who knows everything there's worth knowing about Roy Cohn. He is the director of the riveting documentary, Where Is My Roy Cohn? Matt Turnour. Hello, Matt. Hello. What inspired you to delve deep into this slippery character? Mm, the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. Anyone who lived in New York City uh, who's at all sane or right-minded uh, was particularly horrified by Donald Trump. And before that, they were particularly horrified by Roy Cohn. And when Trump was elected, uh, if you knew your history, you knew that Roy Cohn had done the seemingly impossible. He had created a president from beyond the grave because Donald Trump basically is Roy Cohn. I would say that when you look at the list of characters in Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire, Roy Cohn seems to me the first modern personality. He's somebody who is very cynically using his position, his skills, and his knowledge, and kind of leveraging it against the innocence of people. So he has that sort of what we consider kind of a contemporary cynicism. What was his young life like? How did he form this way about him? Cohn was born to wealth. He's from a prominent Jewish family that had hooks into the legal profession. His father was a judge. Uh, The power and influence of the family didn't stop there. A a branch of the family owned Van Heusen Shirts, which was the most prominent shirt maker in the country, and uh, Q-tips, which is like Band-Aids or Kleenex. I mean, it's an absolutely pervasive brand, like Coke, you know, it's the the Q-tip, but that's the brand. However, at that time, uh, to be Jewish, even in New York City, which was the capital of Judaism in the United States, was to be marginalized. So you played in a league of rich Jews. He's born into this prominent family with the villain paging Dr. Freud, mother of all time, (laughs) Dora. She looks creepy and she acts creepy. There's kind of a imp- weird implication of smothering, almost mother love that verges on incestuous, although there's no documentation of that particularly. But she always went too far. She liked to talk, according to family members I interviewed, about Roy's undescended testicle. <laughs> this became a sort of theme Thanks, of Roy's youth. The one other thing about Dora uh, that's salient is that according to uh, family members and particularly Anne Royfe, who's a a noted feminist author, Dora Cohn was known as the ugliest girl in the Bronx. Ouch. And that that meant uh, in the family that even though she was uh, a wealthy daughter of a prominent family, that she couldn't get married because she was according to her own relatives, too ugly to get married. And she had a bad personality to boot, according to the family. Now, in a Jewish family of prominence in this period, to be unmarried well into your 20s was uh, a terrible, terrible thing. You would be an old maid, and that was unthinkable. Uh, Eventually, they married Dora off in a kind of deal. 
uh, almost an arranged marriage with a poor student of law named Al Cohn. And they said, we'll make you a judge if you marry Dora. And he married her and he did indeed become a judge. Even as a young man, Roy Cohn appears to be someone who doesn't wait for life to happen to him. He goes out there and he seizes it. So, Matt, tell us about his role in the trial of the Rosenbergs. We've obviously done an episode on this, Katie. We heard all about the tragic tale of Julius and Ethel and how it ended for them. But Matt, Roy Cohn at this stage, he's only 23, but he becomes a sort of a dark star as a result of this trial. A dark star is a wonderful description of him. Uh, there's several aspects to the tragedy of, of his life. But one of them is that he was so brilliant and he used his brilliance for nefarious purposes uh, continuously. He showed uh, great intelligence and precociousness at a young age. He graduated years early from law school. And because his father was an important judge, he had a leg up. So when he had graduated from Columbia Law School, the family was keen to place him one of the highest profile positions in the, the country and the culture at that time was to be a prosecutor of spies. The Justice Department was looking for Jewish lawyers at that time because they did not want uh, the prosecution of this uh, Jewish couple who were, had been accused of espionage uh, for the Soviet Union uh, to be viewed as an anti-Semitic prosecution. And Cohn uh, was one of the prosecutors. He was by far the youngest. And uh, he was the one who was uh, the most bloodthirsty. And it was always said, and it seems to have been pretty firmly established, that he's the one who arranged for the execution of Ethel Rosenberg, who it's still hotly debated today, uh, but was probably innocent. Cohn would have been infamous for that act alone. But he was in his early 20s when he achieved that, and that was just the beginning. So Joe McCarthy seizes on the topic that is going to be his hobby horse. And how is it that he chooses Roy Cohn to be his Iago? Well, after the Rosenberg case, Roy Cohn became an enemy of many people, and he became a hero to others. Uh, perhaps more importantly than both of those things, he became a celebrity. And uh, it was kind of a hot ticket. Uh, now, there was another hot ticket about his age in Washington, in New York at that time, and his name was Bobby Kennedy. And uh, there was a job opening to be the uh, chief aide to this media firebrand, Joe McCarthy, who was the uh, number one red hunter in the United States and was on radio and TV and making headlines over the place. And Roy Cohn and Bobby Kennedy both wanted that job. And uh, Joseph Kennedy, the father, uh, really wanted Bobby Kennedy to have that job. And it became a kind of a competition. And um, Roy Cohn ended up prevailing. So he became probably eventually, much to Bobby Kennedy's relief, the counsel to uh, the senatorial committee. He then made a huge media spectacle out of that that culminated in what is known as the Army McCarthy hearings. And you call it in your documentary the first TV reality show. That's right. Cohn's manipulating McCarthy. They're having incredible success. 
at becoming red baiters and huge media stars. And McCarthy's an absolute superstar, but you know, any sane, wise reader of the news would see that he was a dangerous demagogue. And even Dwight Eisenhower, who was also a Republican, did not like what McCarthy was doing. But uh, there was very little anyone could do to stop him. Such was the power of the media even then. Cohn was the power behind the throne. And at a certain point, uh, Cohn's power went to his head in the biggest way possible. And he decided a very handsome man named David Shine, whom he had a obsession with, maybe a romantic relationship with, it's unclear, should have special privileges. Shine was drafted into the army and Cohn didn't want him to go into the army. <laughs> so he decided to... Uh, tell the commanding general that Shine should be made a general himself and billeted in the presidential suite of the Waldorf Astoria. I mean, these are quite ambitious plans, these, aren't they, for a foot soldier? It's psychotic. I mean, you really couldn't make it up, right? It seems like something out of an Eddie Murphy movie plotline or something. The general tells Cohn to shove it, and Cohn then says, and this is a direct quote, uh, then I'm going to wreck the army. And he persuaded Joe McCarthy to uh, do an investigation of the army like they did with the State Department. What you see when you watch the whole thing is that really it's a reality TV show about whether Roy Cohn had a crush on David Shine. Uh, and this was the 1950s when the word gay or homosexual really couldn't be printed in newspapers. It was not a publicly discussed thing. Exactly. And yet you have you have clips in your documentary of uh, Dublantandra's Ahoy. And there's uh, Roy just squirming in his seat. Yeah. So the, the hearings went south for Cohn. They ended up being the biggest contributing factor in the destruction of McCarthy's career. But Welch, who's a hero, certainly to the left in this country, uh, then gay baits Cone and uh, uses in words of innuendo like fairy or pixie. And it's not a great look these days. Uh, at that time, it, no one batted an eyelash. It was just good. It was a good chuckle. Cone should have been destroyed. Uh, not only was he outed in a nationally televised hearing, but he was Jewish, and these were two great disadvantages uh, to anyone who wanted a career in certainly government at that time, but also any other quote-unquote respectable profession. And then you see Cohn rise from the ashes of this disaster that he had absolutely created. And I think he was uh, keen enough uh, as an as a analyst of media and, uh, again, a kind of brilliant person with foresight to see that it didn't matter what type of attention you got, that there was no such thing as bad publicity as long as it was publicity. And that might remind you of someone else as well. And I, I think Trump learned that from Cohn. Ooh, Tom, if you don't mind, I need a moment. So it's just as well. It's time for a commercial break. Hello, I'm Sam Walker. I've spent the last few months talking to this guy. I'm a hunter. It's what I do. He's called KC. Our rules of engagement are pretty simple. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, they're all going to go. He's an American vigilante. And there is one of the biggest men I've ever seen. And he's got a knife in his hand. 
He rescues kidnapped children. There's no feeling in the world like putting a child back in the arms of its parents. By any means necessary. Well, it's ugly. You want me to make sure I don't hurt anybody? He scares me. And he kind of looked at me and I said, I swear to God, I said, if you do anything other than what I told you to do, I said, I'm going to kill you right here. And he might scare you. About got tears in your eyes right now just thinking about that, don't you? Download the podcast, American Vigilante. Download American Vigilante. Out now. Now. I find it hard, Katie, sometimes with Roy Cohn to find his most nefarious episode. But I think certainly in his top three nefarious episodes would be what he did with Lewis Rosenstiel. Can you just explain to us, Matt, exactly what he did? Well, Lewis Rosenstiel is a fascinating forgotten figure in American history. Uh, He was a wealthy man. He was a a Jewish, uh, he would today be a billionaire, but at that time probably a multi-millionaire, a bootlegger who had become a distiller. He was uh, also a fervent anti-communist and compatriot of Cohn's. They had a sort of bromance uh, that is not very well explained. Um, It seems like that Rosenstiel might have been living a double life as well. And there could have been a sort of closeted league of gay men that include, included Rosenstiel and Cohn. Cohn certainly trafficked in, in those circles. And there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of orgiastic party culture going on. Uh, and there were tales of pleasure yachts that would circle Manhattan with elaborate all-male orgies taking place, and among the uh, participants, Cardinal Spellman, who was very close to Roy Cohn. Cohn was Cardinal Spellman's lawyer, and uh, people uh, pretty much have established that Spellman was gay. There's still a lot of Catholics that don't like to talk about that. I tried to get a lot of people to talk about Spellman being gay on camera, and it was surprising to me about how many uh, how many people demurred. They have a they have a good track record on not wanting to shine a light on a few nefarious incidents. Precisely. That relationship continued for decades. And at the end of Rosenstiel's life, uh, he was in a uh, kind of a coma or a a post-stroke state, very ill in a hospital bed in Miami. It was said and then confirmed that a suspicious character, maybe a male nurse, was hovering around the Rosensteel hospital bed and even like moving the bed around to kind of like move it away from the door and away from the prying eyes of the, the real nurses on the ward. And eventually a codicil to, turned out to be the Rosensteel uh, will, was proffered and the stroke-addled or coma, semi-comatose Mr. Rosensteel signed this codicil. Now, if you look at the signature on the codicil, it, it's not in any known language. I mean, it's it's chicken scratch, literally. We show it in the film and it always gets a laugh. It made me laugh. It looked, Katie, to me like a drunk person trying to draw a tree with their eyes shut. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's held up and uh, Cone, uh, with that fake signature or with that aided signature, then became one of the principal beneficiaries of the Rosenstiel fortune 
instead of Rosenstiel's mm. children. He didn't exactly play by the rules. Uh, throughout his career, there were accusations of theft, obstruction, extortion, tax evasion, bribery, blackmail, fraud, perjury, witness tampering. I mean, the whole works. Uh, You would have thought that he ruined himself uh, after the Army McCarthy hearings, but no. uh, He rose from the ashes, as he said, and he aligned himself with the mob. Uh, He was a very successful mob lawyer and then uh, came into contact with Donald Trump. How did those two young men meet? Uh, They met off-told story at a disco called Le Club. Uh, Le Club was a very upscale sort of pickup joint, I guess, in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, I don't think it was particularly a gay place, but it was a place where there would be a lot of rich people. And Cohen liked to be rub elbows with the rich and famous. And later he would do that at Studio 54 very famously. Arguably, Liza Minnelli, Andy Warhol, and Roy Cohn were the three pillars of Studio 54, the disco. But Le Club was another venue. Um, Trump Trump wasn't so welcome at Studio. He was considered to be a little tacky. So they meet uh, in this disco atmosphere, clubby atmosphere. And at that time, Trump, who was uh, pretty much unknown, but had inherited a chunk of money or was given control of a bit of his wealthy uh, father's uh, real estate empire uh, was being pursued by the Justice Department for a very serious racial discrimination, housing discrimination. And uh, Cohn was told this by Trump and he said, come see me, Donald Trump, in my office tomorrow morning, I'll get you out of this. That's exactly the type of thing Cohn specialized in. He had reinvented himself at this point, risen from the ashes of Army McCarthy a couple decades before. Uh, He had kind of like a carriage trade law firm that straddled uh, the underworld and people who were wealthy and powerful and needed to get out of tough scrapes. Uh, He was a very smart lawyer. He didn't really know the law that well, uh, but he knew the judges. So his, his... adage was, uh, fuck the law, just tell me who the judge is. And that's what he was going to do for Trump. And he did it. And so we're saying all these, talking about all these really horrible aspects of Roy Cohn, but in your film, there is a little bit, little hints of tenderness. Like it seems that maybe some of his friends did find him warm, even though he himself, uh, there's a clip in your doc where he says uh, one of his failings is that he perhaps doesn't have empathy for other people. Um, but he does, you you see this very kind of startling scene of him doing calisthenics and sit-ups and crunches in his bedroom surrounded by frog tchotchkes. There's a sort of arrested development angle to him, which you know, a Freudian would say came from mommy. Um, he never had a youth, really. He was, you know, a scholar. He got a teacher off of a traffic ticket, I think, when he was 14 years old. So he was already basically practicing law at 14. And and being gay in that period could also deprive you of your childhood because you don't, you, you really can't do the things that, quote unquote, normal boys are expected to do. You don't, you know, have real boyfriend girlfriend relationships in middle school which is the expected thing so you're kind of evasive and that deprives you of a a traditional childhood and that's a loss 
So I think in a way he's overcompensating by having, you know, a wacky stuffed animal collection when he's a middle-aged man. Uh, he's doing his sit-ups with his, uh, this is a piece of an astonishing 60 Minutes profile of him. There were two, both of which let him off the hook way too easily uh, because he, was, he kind of had the New York media establishment in the palm of his hands. But he's, uh, in 60 Minutes, uh, he's doing these sit-ups in a kind of sweat, a sweat suit ensemble, and he's got what is referred to as his male secretary, Vincent Millard, very good looking young guy sitting on a kind of like a speaker or something, you know, very low to the ground, taking notes about what his calendar is going to be for the week. And the, the sound bite they use in 60 Minutes is like, when's my lunch with Barbara Walters? And, <laughs> you know, the secretary says today. And that brings me to the other point, which is uh, Barbara Walters, who, you know, there was no more iconic figure of TV news other than Walter Cronkite in that period than Barbara Walters. She was the, you know, an icon of uh, female glass ceiling shattering progress. Uh, and she was Roy Cohn's girlfriend in the press. Uh, but she was uh, endlessly loyal to Roy Cohn. Now, keeping company with Roy Cohn like that and allowing Roy Cohn to publicly say that Barbara Walters is my girlfriend is a little bit humiliating for someone of such exalted yeah. stature. I mean, she married several men in this period and I, I, you know, Cohn would still be seen on her arm. Those marriages never lasted. It, it's a part of the, the dark side of the New York media industrial complex that never really is dealt with because the New York media industrial complex doesn't want to deal with it. And Barbara Walters is still with us and people don't want to speak ill of Barbara right. Walters. Uh, but she, I think, has something to answer to. What was she up to with Roy Cohn? I don't care what, their, what anyone's sex life is, but uh, Roy Cohn's the biggest story in town when Barbara Walters is at the height of her power and Roy Cohn was never covered by Barbara Walters uh, and probably was protected by him, which is, that's what she has. It's the juxtaposition of certain things in your film, Matt, that is sometimes the most striking aspect of it. So when we see Roy Cohn in his bedroom, we walk through the bedroom door and he's got a nameplate on the door, a Disney one with the name Roy, which is the sort of thing a five-year-old would have. And then we walk in and he has a mirrored ceiling. Uh, yeah, so this is this is the stuff of, of cinema, really. I mean, it's so peculiar, and it's also at the center of New York culture. So New York is the most formal city in, in America. You know, at that time, everyone wore suits and ties to work, and uh, it, it, it really was a very structured place. And yet, one of its, I'd say, five most powerful lawyers uh, has his law firm in his home. Uh, he lives on the top floor of the townhouse where the business is run out of the, the probably the first two floors. And in his bedroom, he's got the stuffed animal collection, the fur bedspread and the mirrored ceiling. And you hear from the nephew who lived in as a kind of uh, ward of Roy Cohn, that uh, after work or even during work sometimes, uh, the male prostitutes would arrive, frequently more than one, and there would be these elaborate mirrored ceiling sex scenes going on with 
Carmine Galante, head of the you know crime family's legal business, being administrated the floor below. So, Matt, a uh, very satisfying detail uh, in this grisly finale of Roy Cohn's life is the fact that his protege, Donald Trump, refused to visit him on his deathbed. Yeah, so uh, at the time when it's rumored that Cohn has AIDS, uh, he asks Trump for a free hotel room in one of Trump's hotels in Manhattan for uh, one of Roy Cohn's boyfriends who's sick and dying of HIV AIDS. And uh, he, Cohn, asks his secretary to disconnect the call if Trump asks exactly what's wrong with this sick young man. So you can see that Cohn's trying to hide the uh, fact of his uh, illness from Trump. Trump does distance himself from Cohn, in part, I think, because of Cohn's illness. And you have to remember at that time, it was tragically not uncommon for friends to abandon friends who had HIV AIDS. I think Trump also was pulling away from Cohn because Cohn was finally in legal hot water that he probably wasn't going to escape from. So he was either going to be felled by the disease or the legal system was finally going to catch up to him. And Trump, true to form, runs the other way. So uh, Cohn's disbarred, uh, I think, weeks before his death. And Trump would have seen that coming. So when Cohn is coming to the end, uh, there's an attempt to get in touch with Trump and maybe even call in a favor when he's told that Trump doesn't want to take the call. He says, Donald pisses ice water. And he should know. So the end comes for Roy Cohn quite rapidly. He dies of AIDS in 1986. And you often find Matt with people who have been immensely powerful and then come to an untimely end. There's at least a sense of remorse at the end. That doesn't seem to have happened with Roy Cohn. And right until his dying day... He's denying that he is gay and he's denying that he has HIV. There's so many layers of irony and tragedy to this. Uh, Cone was unstoppable. Uh, a tear in the human fabric uh, uh, is what ends up felling him, and that's HIV AIDS, this terrible virus. Uh, as he becomes ill, uh, he denies that he has the virus, and he says that he has liver cancer on, on network television. And the Reagans are in office at this time. They help Cohn as close friends uh, get special treatment in the National Institutes for Health. Uh, he's in an experimental drug program that virtually no one else can get into. So the hypocrisy and irony of the Reagans uh, because Nancy was particularly close to Cohn, uh, while their administration is doing less than zero to um, to help stem the HIV/AIDS crisis, uh, is is among the most depressing things in uh, in modern history. And there's Roy Cohn right at the center of that, um, and he dies in 1986 of the disease. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, his denial of his sexuality and his affliction actually, in context, are not the most of his crimes. Uh, because if you 
go back to that period, the stigma of HIV AIDS and the stigma of homosexuality are so great and uh, tragic in their own right uh, that they were so stigmatized that someone who was uh, trying to be live their life under the, the burdens of those two uh, stigma, uh, you actually have to have some sympathy. Uh, it's hard to have sympathy for Cone, but uh, in that light, I think if you wanted to find something sympathetic about him that you know you wouldn't wish that disease on anybody. Katie, we often find ourselves talking about the legacy of people or places or events. Yeah. But I think the legacy is there in front of us and we've talked about it. So what I'm actually finding myself wondering, Matt, is when your documentary came out, it quite clearly spells out those links that you've talked about, the links from Joe McCarthy through Walter Winchell, through the Rosenbergs, all the way through to Richard Nixon and... Reagans. The Reagans and Rupert Murdoch, all the way to Trump. I'm just wondering, do you think America is aware of Roy Cohn's primacy in all this? When the documentary came out, did you get the sense that America is aware of this dark star that underwrites its history? Well, Gore Vidal called the United States, the United States of amnesia. And that's why I made the movie, because the answer to your question is no. A few months after I started making the film in the first year of the Trump presidency that he blurted out in the Oval Office, where's my Roy Cohn? And that was a few months after I started uh, the production of this film. It gave me the title for the film, but it showed me and confirmed for me that Trump himself was still patterning his career on his mentor, Roy Cohn, and it proved out for me that Cohn had actually created an American president from beyond the grave. Well, Matt Turnauer, you have certainly fleshed out the picture of the puppet master of the late 20th century, it would appear, Roy Cohn, responsible for so much that's bad. And yet, I have to say, he does have a certain... It's one of those car crash scenarios. Uh, and the more you find out about him, the more you want to find out about him. <laughs> wow, what a privilege to talk to Matt Turnauer. You know, he also directed a great documentary about Studio 54, which you should check out. Uh, it's called Studio 54. And there's a lot of Roy Cohn in there as well, because not only did he hang out with the lads uh, under the big glitter ball, but he also got um, Steve Rebell out of a big, uh, well, actually, he didn't get him out of the tax problem. He, That's what he, brought him down. Yeah, it's what brought him down. But he minimized the sentence. So, you know, he had a role to play, whether it was uh, with communist or disco dancers. He was there, Roy Cohn. He was. And I don't know about you, Katie, but when I watched Matt's film, so I ended up watching it quite early in the morning for parental logistic reasons. <laughs> and I found that I felt nauseous nauseous I felt nauseous for the rest of the day really yeah like physically you had a reaction oh I just suddenly thought the world was a terrible dark place and that everything was evil and nefarious uh -huh. that's the effect that Roy Cohn had on me it feels like this is one of the episodes where we need to go and cleanse ourselves in some way um, you mentioned Studio 54 I yeah. actually brought a white horse to the studio today so we can ride <laughs> off into the sunset in a Studio 54 fashion what a very good idea just get on that pony and trot 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 
And before we do, Katie, we should mention another <laughs> podcast that people can listen to. Yes. Have a look for Death of a Film Star. Each episode looks at a different actor like Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, and it gives you the inside tales, the scandals and the truth about who they really were. Just search for Death of a Film Star. You know what, Tom? We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. That's just going to keep going. And you know what else is going to keep us going? If you listeners get in touch, you can help spread that fire via Insta and Twitter. And if you have some big hot tips about future guests, potentially experts, why don't you get in touch with your suggestions at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. And next week on Fire, Katie, we have... Juan Peron. Juan Peron. <laughs> Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.